If you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. What we're going to do is we're going to take three more steps in the Passion narrative. We've, we've started with the Last Supper, and now we're going to go to the garden, and then we'll go to the cross and, and see two glimpses at the cross. The cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the cry of, or declaration of triumph, it is finished. So Matthew chapter 26, um, verse 36. I want us to read this one together. Sinclair Ferguson said, The Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. One of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The theme I want us to see tonight in the Garden of Gethsemane is a $2 theological word called propitiation. And if you look a little farther down in your notes, you can see how to spell propitiation. Propitiation. This is a word every follower of Christ needs to know. Not many of us know it. We need to know propitiation. The truth here is that Jesus endured our condemnation. And what I've listed as the key text are four texts in the New Testament where we see the New Testament word here that, that pictures propitiation. And we're going to show, I want to show you how the Garden of Gethsemane sums up this truth that Jesus endured condemnation for us and what propitiation means. Propitiation, Jesus endured our condemnation. You remember, remember Romans 3, 25. When it says, when the Bible says, when Paul writes, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. In fact, just go there real quick. Go in your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And look with me at verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Now I'm guessing amidst the many translations that there probably are, Across the room, there's different translations in this, in this verse. And if you've got an NIV translation, the words are God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, and you probably have a note that takes you to the bottom and gives you an additional description of what this term is in the New Testament. The note at the bottom in my Bible says, or, as opposed to sacrifice of atonement, or as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. 
And that's, that's the phrase here that I want you to lock into your mind. God presented him as the one who would turn aside wrath, taking away sin. And here's the truth. Sin, and this in your notes, sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. Sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. Paul's been talking about it. ever since chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 19. The sinfulness of man and the wrath of God do sin. Sin arouses the fury, anger, and wrath of God. As sinners, that means we deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Sin evokes fury, anger, wrath in God. We are sinners, so we deserve to bear that wrath. So Jesus, as our substitute, again, we're taking this diamond, satisfaction through substitution, we're just kind of turning a little bit more. As our substitute, Jesus became the object of God's fury, anger, and wrath so that we might not experience it. And this is what's going on. In the cross, and specifically in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus on the cross is turning away God's wrath, taking away our sin. Now, there's actually two theological terms here. One is expiation, which means our sin is removed. Taking away our sin, the second part of that phrase. Jesus takes away our sin. To have sin expiated means it's taken away, it's removed. Propitiation means God's wrath is satisfied. When we sang earlier, we sang in Christ alone, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. We are singing about propitiation there. It just doesn't fit well into contemporary worship songs. You can't, <laughs> what do you rhyme with propitiation? It just doesn't work. So instead we'll go with this. God's wrath is satisfied. So what does this mean and how does it relate to the garden? When we see Jesus going to the garden and three times praying, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. It begs the question, what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? And the answer may surprise us a little bit. The cup of the cross is not primarily physical suffering. When we see Jesus sweating blood from his pores in intense agony, it's not because he is thinking about the physical pain associated with crucifixion. The cup of the cross is predominantly spiritual suffering. There is a spiritual reality expressed in the prayer, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. And this is important. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not a coward about to face Roman soldiers. If he is, if what he is cowering in the garden about is about what the Roman soldiers are about to do to him, then what are we to say of the countless martyrs since that day who have gone to their deaths singing? The man in India who is skinned alive, who looked at his tormentor and said, take my outer garment off today. Today I clothe myself in a new garment. Christopher Love as he's being led to the gallows and his wife is applauding him saying, today they will sever you from your physical head, but they cannot sever you from your spiritual head. And he goes singing to the cross. Were they more brave than Jesus, their Savior himself? Absolutely not. What is causing this anguish is not the fact that Jesus is a coward about to face Roman soldiers. It's the fact that Jesus is a Savior about to endure divine wrath. I want you to hear with me the Old Testament description of the cup. 
Psalm 75, verse 8. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Listen to the intensity in Isaiah 51. I, awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his what? His wrath. You who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. Of all the sons she bore, there was none to guide her. Of all the sons she reared, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come on you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. It's the goblet of wrath. Jeremiah 25. Take my, from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath, God speaking here, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. These are uncomfortable words when we think about God. Ezekiel 23, you will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. Habakkuk 2, you'll be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. Revelation 14, some of the... Some of the most humbling depictions of the wrath of God. Revelation chapter 14. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Revelation 18, give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. This is the picture over and over and over again. Old Testament, New Testament. A cup filled with the wine of the wrath of God. Old Testament. Now this is where we're going to just fly through, but get a picture of the seriousness of the wrath of God. Remember, we diminish the wrath, we dilute the wrath of God, we diminish the holiness of God. We don't want to diminish His holiness. In the Old Testament, God's wrath is real. There are more than 20 different words that describe God's wrath in the Old Testament. More than 20 different words. More than over 580 different references to God's wrath. Over 580 different references to the wrath of God. And I've listed some of the, the pictures there. And they are, they're, they're staggering. Let his own size see his destruction. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. Ezekiel chapter 7. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. Ezekiel chapter 22. 
get through the middle. It's, I will gather you into Jerusalem as men gather silver, copper, iron, lead, and tin into a furnace to melt it with a fiery blast. So I will gather you in my anger and my wrath and put you inside the, the city and melt you. I will gather you and I will blow on you with my fiery wrath and you will be melted inside her. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you will be melted inside her and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath upon you. This is real. God's wrath is personal. It's personal. It's God speaking to his people. Ezekiel, or Exodus chapter 32. And leave me alone so my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Deuteronomy 6. Your Lord, your God, who's among you, is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you. He will destroy you from the face of the land. This is God among his people. God's wrath is personal. It's intense. It's intense. As if what we've seen is not intense enough. Listen to this picture in Isaiah 13. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. Their faces aflame. See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Ezekiel chapter 5, the same. God's wrath is intense. God intensely hates sin. Do not do this detestable thing I hate, God says. He intensely hates sin, and as we've talked about, God, in his holy wrath, intensely hates sinners. It's what the Bible says. We cannot soften this. Do not soften this. You hate all who do wrong. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. His wrath is intense, it's sovereign. It's authoritative. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? God's wrath is steady. God's wrath is not irrational, ladies and gentlemen. It is steady. It is consistent. It is predictable. Evil always provokes the wrath of God. God is a righteous judge who expresses his wrath every day. God's wrath is steady. It's pure. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. His wrath flows from his purity. God's wrath is loving. What do you mean loving wrath? Think about, think about those whom you love. Think about your children or your wife or your husband or your mom or dad or whoever. Think about someone you love. Anything that would threaten them, threaten to harm them, is going to be met by you with major resistance. I love my wife. I love my boys. And as a result, that which threatens to harm them evokes a response from me. That which is not good for them. There are so many things in this culture that there is a holy, I hope in my heart, a holy anger for. I do not want them to be pulled away by it's the picture. God's wrath is loving. So that's Old Testament, New Testament. God's wrath is continual. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. The wrath of God is being revealed, continually revealed. God's wrath is coming. Jesus said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Romans, Paul says, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. It's coming. God's wrath is deserved. He talks about how Condemnation in Romans 3 is deserved. We deserve condemnation from God. It's deserved. God's wrath is eternal. Why does he say such serious things about sin, Jesus? If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Pluck out your eyes. Throw them away if they're causing you to sin because there's a place called hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's eternal. God's wrath is final. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. God's wrath is dreadful. Revelation 6 They will call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And God's wrath, ladies and gentlemen, is irreversible. Irreversible. Middle of Revelation 14, 9 through 11, it talks about the smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. It's the New Testament language. Can't get any longer than that. Forever and ever. Revelation 20 talks about judgment If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Irreversible. So this is the picture we have in the Old Testament, New Testament, of real, intense, personal, coming, continual, dreadful, irreversible, eternal wrath. On the cross, we discover the one who turns aside the wrath of God. Propitiation. Dependent on the initiative of God. This is key right here. That God presented him as one who would turn away his wrath. There are pagan religions where there is a concept of propitiation. Where a God or gods, the gods are angry. And so we need to do these things in order to placate. In order to satisfy the wrath of the gods. That's not what's being taught here in the New Testament. Because the reality is we are the objects of wrath and there is nothing we can do to satisfy it. No matter religious works, no matter good deeds can cover over the sin which provokes the wrath and fury of anger of a holy God toward our sin and us in our sin. And so it's God who's initiating propitiation, not us trying to figure out what can we do to propitiate an angry God. It is God himself saying, I'm going to initiate propitiation. Propitiation is dependent on the initiation of God. It is accomplished by the Son of God. It's one of those words, same word that we see in Romans 3. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the picture, the atoning sacrifice. We don't have time to look at John chapter 3 and Numbers chapter 21, but it's a picture of a sinful people who deserve the wrath of God. We're just just going to... fly over that. We just, we just don't have time to do it. I'm sorry. Propitiation 
is a demonstration. So it's accomplished by the Son of God, initiated by the Father, and it's a demonstration of the love of God. Now this is where we really see this whole picture come together. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What we need to see is the... You got... God, Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, all God. One God, three persons. What we need to see in the Father and the Son is the Father and Son working in unison here. The picture in propitiation is not a loving Son who is trying to placate an angry Father. We've got a loving Father in this picture. We don't have the Son and the Father at odds in any way. They are in unison in this picture. God was, God's Son was sent. Jesus was sent by the Father's love. The Father sent His Son by His love. So it's the Father's love that makes propitiation possible. Forty times in the Gospel of John, you've got John mentioning that the Father sent the Son Jesus talking about how the Father sent him. It's obviously summed up in John 3.16. He gave his one and only Son. And what we've got is God was sent by the Father's love, not just for us, but the Son, or the Father loved the Son. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. So what we've got is the love of the Father who sends the Son, and then God's wrath is endured by the Son's love. God's Son is sent by the Father's love. God's wrath is endured by the Son's love. You don't have the Son unwilling, an unwilling participant in this thing, saying, well, if I have to. This is not, it's not an accident, brothers and sisters. It's not the picture, the story is told so often of the, tr the train operator, bridge operator, and the train is coming. Some of you may have heard this story. The father and his son, they're there at the bridge, and the train is coming, and the son has wandered off to plays with his dad at work for the day and he's caught and the train's coming and the father has to release the lever so the bridge is put down so the people in the train don't die and he's faced with this decision do I save my son and let all these people on the train die or do I kill my son by letting this lever down and let all the people of the train live and this is what's usually a story, an illustration used to describe the cross. That is absolutely not what's going on at the cross. This is not a son who's wandered off from the father and gotten into something he shouldn't have and now he's in a predicament and the father has to figure out something to do. Absolutely not. The father sent the son and the son is being obedient to the father. That's why he's going to the cross. And God's wrath is being endured by the son's love because Christ is being obedient to the Father. This is where we need to realize. As we think on this Good Friday, we need to remember that we are not saved from our sins because a bunch of Roman soldiers arrested Jesus and beat him and mocked him and nailed him to a cross. We are not saved from our sins because of what these Roman persecutors did to Jesus. We are saved from our sins because the Father and the Son in complete unison 
willingly went to the cross and Christ took the cup filled with the fury of the wrath of God. One preacher said it is like you and I are standing in front of a dam 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide filled to the brim with water. And in one instant, that dam is let loose and all of that water comes rushing toward us. In the same way, the torrent of the wrath of God came rushing toward us. Now imagine as that water comes towards you, the ground in front of you, right before that water hits you, the ground in front of you opens up and swallows every single drop. In the same way, Christ went to the cross. He took the full cup of a wrathful God and he drank down every single drop, turned it over and cried out, it is is finished. That's what happened at the cross. He endured our condemnation. He experienced the wrath that was due us. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted I. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. All right. We move on. So when we, when we picture the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is not a coward. He's a savior about to endure divine wrath. Third scene, turn the diamond, the cry of dereliction. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that scene? In the middle of the day, Darkness sweeps over the entire land. And for three hours, it's dark. Even to borrow from the picture we just saw, Jesus is not enduring wrath for a moment, for hours. And darkness comes over, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? Key theme, reconciliation reconciliation. And the truth here is that Jesus suffered our separation. Here's the substitute. He suffered separation for us instead of us. Reconciliation. In our sin, we are separated from God as his enemies. Enemies. Enmity toward God. Friends of the world, James 4 says. So whose side is the enmity on? Is it on our side or on God's side? And the answer seems to be in Scripture both. Man is hostile to God. Romans 1 at the end says we are God-haters. Sinful mind, 
Sinful man is hostile to God, Romans 8. At the same time, God is hostile to man, as we've seen in the sense that His wrath rests on sinners. So in our sin, we're separated from God as enemies. Through our substitute, because of our substitute, we are reconciled to God as His friends. Two key texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Later it says, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteous of God. And then Romans 5, really all the way through verse 11 God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For which when we were enemies of God, God sent his son. How much more, having been saved, will we be saved through his life? That's Romans 5, 9 through 11. So the picture here is a substitute who reconciles us to God as his friends, uh, as friends of God. Once enemies, now friends, the difference being a substitute. How does that work? And how does that relate to this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, think about what's going on on the cross there when he says that. What is the meaning of those words? First, what it's not. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not a cry of unbelief. Some have said, much like we saw Jesus pictured almost as a coward in the Garden of Gethsemane, that somehow in this moment of supreme self-sacrifice that Jesus lacks faith or trust in the Father. And that's not at all what's going on here. Jesus has said, he knows where he's going. I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. He's confident. It's not a cry of unbelief. It's also not a cry of confusion. Jesus is not wondering, why am I dying? Why is this happening? He had said this was going to happen. Not a cry of confusion. Not a cry of despair either. What does Hebrews 12, 2 say? Fix our eyes on Jesus, author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what set before him? Joy set before him endured the cross. He'd said to his disciples where he's going. What he's doing. In Matthew chapter 27 there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting from Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. And we see, and we're going to look at that psalm, but at the very end of that psalm, the psalmist who has cried out, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, comes to the conclusion that God has not despised or dis- disdained him, not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So there's, it's not a cry of unbelief, confusion, despair. What is it a cry of then? I would encourage us to look at this cry from the cross through three different lenses. One, a cry of spiritual anguish. He quotes from the Old Testament, Psalm 22, verse 1. You see it listed there. In light of what we just saw, Christ is experiencing the depth of God's wrath. If you think about it, he was sweating blood at the anticipation of it. What must it have been like for the holy God of the universe in the flesh to experience the full weight of wrath, infinite wrath towards sin? So there's spiritual anguish, overwhelmed by the judgment of sin poured out on him in that moment. Second, a cry of relational alienation. There was a 
of real separation from the Father, in a sense, which we're going to talk about in a second. We'll come back to that. And it's depicted in the darkness, this three hours of darkness. And don't, don't m- misunderstand this picture. Some preachers would have said, well, God looked down and could not bear to see what the soldiers were doing to his son, so he turned away. Absolutely not. God looked down and could not bear to see your sin and my sin on his son. And because of our sin, he turned away. Our sin thrust on his son. Cry of relational alienation, alienated by the Father and alienated by men. There's parallels here between Psalm 22 and, and, and the gospel accounts of Jesus' death. You look in Psalm 22, verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then you see the picture in Matthew 27. Those who pass by him hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it, save yourself. Come down if you're the son of God. You see these parallels. You can go back through and look through them. What we've got is the gospel accounts of Jesus dying on the cross reflecting the cries of the psalmist in Psalm 22. Alienated by those he loved. Peter, disciples, picture of alienation from father and men in very real ways. Spiritual anguish, relational alienation, and third, physical agony. We're talking about the theological mysteries here and the truths, but we cannot, we can't overlook the physical picture. I think we have a tendency, a dangerous tendency, tendency to glamorize the physical picture. That's what we talk about all the time when we talk about the cross. We talk about all the physical facets of suffering. And I think we can over-glamorize some of those things, but they are still realities. He was nailed, his feet, his hands to a cross with a crown of thorns thrust through his head. Death by crucifixion was basically death by brutal suffocation because in order to breathe, you would have to press up on feet that had nails run into them and press out on arms that had nails thrust, uh, on hands that had nails thrust into them. And you would lift up to try to gasp for breath. And in the process, your back, scourged by what had been done before, would scrape along that cross. That was to breathe. And this is what our Savior was experiencing. And so it was all spiritual anguish, an ultimate spiritual anguish, but relational alienation and physical agony. That was the separation on the cross. Now, how does that provide salvation? Salvation from the curse. Here's the picture of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. I love what William Temple said. He said, all is of God. The only thing of my very own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. God is the giver of the gospel. He's the one doing the reconciling. Whenever you see this word reconciled in the New Testament, it's either talking about God is the subject, God is reconciling, or if it's talking about us, it's used in the passive form. We are being reconciled. We have been reconciled. God is the subject. We're not reconciling ourselves to God. You don't see that in Scripture. You see God reconciling himself to us. You see us being reconciled by God. He's the giver of the gospel. Second, he's the gift of the gospel. 
He is reconciling us to himself. This is why we can't, when we talk about evangelism and the gospel, talk about, well, believe in Christ and you get forgiveness of your sins and you get eternal life and you get your best life and you get all of these things. No. You come to Christ and you get God. And all of these things flow from God, but we have taken God himself out of how we preach the cross and the gospel and offered his gifts instead. He's reconciling us to himself and he is the supreme treasure. Not his gift. God is the treasure that is bought for us. We are being reconciled to a person, to God. He's the gift of the gospel and he's the goal of the gospel. God's designed it this whole way so that the one who gives the grace gets the glory. And if we add anything to this picture, then that is credit to us. And that is not the design of the cross. And it's not the design of the gospel. God's the author of reconciliation. Christ is the agent of reconciliation. He's the one who makes it possible, who reconciles man to God. And this is where Galatians chapter 3 comes in. Key text. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3.10 tells us we were under the curse of God's law. Galatians 3.10. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That's a quotation directly from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. And the picture is, all who do not obey the law of God fully are under a curse. Fully. God's law is not a religious cafeteria where you pick this and this and this and this and you leave out this and this and this and you decide what works best for you. It's not the way God's law works. You disobey at one point, you disobey the whole deal. And you're under a curse because of that. That's when you go back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you see blessings and curses. Curses the man who does this. Curses the man who does this. Curses the man who does that. Blesses the man who does this or that. That's what Deuteronomy 27 and 28 is all about. Now, when you think about this picture of blessing and curse, follow with me here. Blessing and curse. Blessing, to be blessed, is to experience the favorable presence of God. To be blessed is to experience the favorable presence of God. Numbers chapter 26, Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Great picture of that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. To have the face of God turned towards you. This was blessing. This was the beautiful vision of the face of God. That's the picture. Blessing. What great imagery there. And blessing all throughout the Old Testament was the reward for obedience. Deuteronomy 28. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if, key word, if you obey the Lord your God. Blessing to experience the favorable presence of God. This is the reward for obedience because you're walking with God. On the other hand, curse. Curse is to be cut off from the favorable presence of God. The curse is the opposite of blessing. So what it means to be cursed, instead of God turning his face towards you, it's God turning his back towards you and his face away from you. Cut off from the light of his favorable presence. This is what God said in Exodus 33. He said, to a people in sin, he said, if I go with you, I will destroy you on the way. You will have not my favorable presence with you. It's the picture we see in 2 Kings 23 and 24. Now the reason, the reason I'm saying favorable presence of God here is because I think sometimes we have a misunderstanding here. The reality is most of the time when we see in Scripture the presence of God, it is a picture of the blessing of God. It's a picture of the favor of his presence. 
And so when we talk about the presence of God, we talk about it in a favorable sense. We just associate the two together. However, we need to realize that God is omnipresent, right? And so when we talk about being cast out of his presence, how is that really possible? It's not. He's present everywhere. And so when we say somebody's cast out of his presence, then what we're talking about is how they are experiencing the not favorable presence of God, but it's a picture of curse, unfavorable presence. And that's the picture God said to his people in Exodus 33. If my presence is with you, I will destroy you on the way. God with us is not always a good thing. You see this. Because God, think about, think about eternal damnation. Think about hell. Is God present? If we answer no, then he is not omnipresent. Hell is a demonstration of the divine wrath of God and judgment of God. There's a very real sense of his presence. Now, it's, it's being cast out of his presence in the sense that it's being cursed, but not complete. That's why we're talking about favorable presence. Picture here is to be cursed is to mean not that God's presence is completely gone, but that his back is turned toward from you and his curse is upon you. The curse is upon you, and that's the recompense for disobedience. If you do not obey the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 28, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. In other words, you will see his presence revealed in darkness. And now we're getting to the heart of what's going on on the cross. We are under the curse of God's law. We deserve the darkness of his presence, his curse toward us, cast out from the favor of his presence. And what happened at the cross is Christ came under the cross of God's judgment. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Quoting there, from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Catch this. It just so happened that Christ died at a time when the Jewish people were under Roman authority. Romans who had devised crucifixion. Jesus was not stoned to death. He died on a tree for a reason, to give us picture of the curse of God. I've got Hebrews 13 scriptures listed through there because Jesus was cut off from God's favorable presence. Hebrews 13 talks about how he died outside the camp. And you look in Leviticus and you see outside the camp represents the sins of the people and the uncleanness of the people. If you had an infectious disease, you went outside the camp. If you were going to be stoned for blaspheming, Leviticus 24, you went outside the camp. And this is where Jesus went. It is a picture of him experiencing the curse cut off from God's favorable presence and Jesus being given the full recompense of our disobedience. Now feel the weight of 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The curse due our sin put on his son. I love what Luther said. Our most merciful father, seeing us to be oppressed and overwhelmed with the curse of the law so that we could, we could never be delivered from it by our own power, listen to this, sent his only son in the world and laid upon him the sins of all men, saying, be thou Peter that deny her. 
Paul, that persecutor, blasphemer, and cruel oppressor. David, that adulterer, that sinner which did eat the apple in paradise. That thief which hanged on the cross. And briefly, be thou the person which hath committed the sins of all men. See therefore that thou pay and satisfy for them all. This is the picture. He took the curse completely for us so that we would become. Now, be careful because this is where we have to guard in our thinking about salvation, of thinking about what we do in order to be saved. Because the reality is, it is based, salvation is based completely on what Christ has done and we are simply the acceptors of reconciliation. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Here's the reality. We cannot remove the curse. We cannot remove the curse. There is no box we can check, no aisle we can walk, no things we can do, no routine we can keep in order to remove the curse from us. We can only receive the cross. We've got three options here. Every single one of us in this room, three options. Number one, we can ignore the curse. We can pretend like it's not there. We can pretend like we are not cursed before God. And we can live in a fantasy world that denies the penalty due our sin. Second, and this is where so many of us fall. And I'm convinced there are many around this room that probably find themselves here. Second, we can work to overcome the curse. We can go to church and we can do our best and we can pray and we can read the Bible and we can try to check off all the boxes that we know we're supposed to check off and we can find ourselves falling over and over again but trying harder the next time and trying harder the next time and feeling condemned and feeling like we just can't get it done but trying harder and harder and harder and harder and we can work to overcome the curse. If you find yourself there, or the first one, my exhortation to you is to take the third option. The third option is not to ignore the curse or to work to overcome the curse. Third option, embrace the curse. Embrace it. Say, yes, I stand condemned before God, and there is nothing I can do. Embrace the curse and run to the cross and find that he has taken the curse for you. And therefore, you don't need to try harder next time because he has already taken. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. He suffered separation so that you can simply receive the cross. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's the picture. God turns darkness, curse, recompense for disobedience put on him instead of us in order that we might be reconciled to God. We who were once enemies, now friends. Last picture of the cross. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. One word in the gospel text to tell us, die, it is finished. 
Here's the question. Jesus had died. He hadn't even risen from the grave. Was it really finished? Absolutely, it was finished. We'll see the significance, particularly on Sunday, here at Brook Hills and resurrection. The key theme here is redemption. 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 Jesus paid our debt. When Jesus shouted, it is finished, he was declaring that he had paid the full penalty for sin. No debt, no penalty left to be paid. The payment for sin was fully rendered. I love what Anselm said. He said, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So what do we mean when we talk about redemption? What does that word mean? You got sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption. What does this word mean? It means Jesus paid our debt. Because of our sin, we live in a state of bondage. Because of our sin, we live in a state of bondage. We are slaves to sin. We are slaves to ourselves. Slaves to sin, slaves to ourselves, to the sinful nature, to the flesh. We are slaves to Satan. We have to be careful here. We'll talk about this, not to go that whole ransom theory to where Satan is able to make demands of God. But the reality is we're blinded by Satan. Following the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Slaves to the law, held prisoners by the law, Paul says in Galatians 3, and slaves to death. All those whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So we were in a state of bondage in our sin. Because of the price that our substitute has paid, we are liberated from bondage to live in freedom. From slavery to freedom. From bondage to liberty. This is what Mark 10, 45 is all about. It's about the fact that we are slaves and we need a Savior. A divine rescue is necessary. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same word that's used in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. A ransom for many. This is a great, great word here. Lutron, ransom. Then you take, you take intro Greek class. The first word you learn is luo, to loose, to loosen something. And this is the picture, to set free, to unbind. This is what the cross is about. It's about being loosed. It's about being set free. Because of the cross, we are free from sin. Anyone who has died has been free from sin. You have been set free from sin. We are free from ourselves. Christ has conquered the flesh, sinful nature. We are free from Satan. Again, not in the sense the picture is when the ransom price paid, it's not a price paid to Satan as if Satan was making demands of God. This is where the, the imagery here just breaks down some. So don't go there. But the reality is in salvation, we are set free from slavery to spiritual forces of evil. For, set free from Satan, we are free from the law. Even here we have to be careful. Because when we talk about being free from the law, it doesn't mean, we're talking about being free from the curse of the law. The law is, the law is holy, righteous, and good. Romans chapter 7. And especially when it comes to the law of Christ, we're free for the first time to obey the law of Christ. That's what had been prophesied in Jeremiah 31. And Hebrews 10 says it's been fulfilled. So we're free from the law in the sense of the curse of the law. We're free from death. Ladies and gentlemen, death is a defeated enemy, and we do not fear it anymore. Free from death. Now, in order to see this picture in the cross, 
We gotta get the setup of redemptive history. Old Testament, redemption anticipated. Isaiah 43, fear not, I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. We've got all kinds of patterns in the Old Testament. Men, men paid a price in order to buy property. You see, I'm just gonna give you some pictures of redemption in the Old Testament. To buy property, to free a relative. You could free a relative from some sort of bondage that they were in by paying a redemption price. To free a slave, you could free a slave by paying a redemption price. You could free exiles. This was the picture of God freeing his people from exile. Notice in all of these cases of redemption, there was a decisive, there was a costly price that was paid. So redemption involves paying a price. Redeeming is paying a price. God paid a price in order to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. When he talks about bringing them out of slavery, which we looked at in the Passover, Exodus 6 talks about how God redeemed them with an outstretched arm. He paid a price to deliver his people, free his people from Babylonian captivity, to rescue his people from the consequences of their sin. And the, the dominant image we have of God in the Old Testament when it comes to redemption, God as Redeemer, is, it's really his power and his grace wrapped up together here in this picture. God demonstrates his power as redeemer. You look at these verses. Go through and look at 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 77, and so on. And you will see God displaying his power in redeeming his people. It's about God splitting the Red Sea in Exodus 14, redeeming his people. And they will know that I am the Lord when I show my power in this way. And then... God's people illustrate his grace as the ones who are redeemed. So you have power and grace in this picture of redemption. God has power to redeem and grace that causes him to redeem. Two Old Testament stories. Two Old Testament stories run through. For those of you who have done, who've looking at Secret Church's date night tonight, these two stories are for you, okay? This is the romantic part of our evening together. So, uh, Cuddle up next to the person next to you, only if you're on a, like, that kind of, yeah, anyway. So, um, two stories, Old Testament. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. This is Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. Moabites hated by Israelites. Ruth is brought to Israel after her husband dies. She is a barren woman for 10 years, has not had a child, no heir to carry on her husband's line. She's barren, an outcast in the land of Israel, Bethlehem. So what happens is in Ruth chapter 2, she goes and just happens to find herself working in the field of Boaz. And Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. You go back to Leviticus chapter 25 and you see the provision that God has made for someone. If something happens like this kind of situation, that a, someone who is close, a kinsman redeemer, can buy that, purchase that person, pay a redemption price to bring that person into his family. And so she finds herself in Boaz's field. And here's the portrait we have of a kinsman redeemer. This is where it gets romantic. What does he do? Well, first, he seeks the outcast as his family. He seeks the outcast. Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Boaz is taking initiative here. He's using a term of endearment, assuring her that she can stay in his field. He saves the outcast from harm. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even as she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. 
Women in Boaz and Ruth's position were often insulted or treated harshly in that kind of condition. And Boaz is making sure that's not happening to Ruth. And finally, he serves the outcast at his table. She gives him, he gives her the right to take water with his men whenever she needs it. And then she gets invited to the meal table. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Now it's getting real romantic. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. So this is the picture. Boaz inviting her to his table. And then we get to chapter 3 in Ruth, and we find that there's someone who is closer in line, kinsman line, to Ruth's family. And as a result, Boaz is going to go need to have a conversation with this dude. And so that's what happens in chapter 4. And you get to this price of a kinsman redeemer. And basically, in order, to, in order to redeem someone, you have to have a few different things. Number one, you've got to have the right to redeem. And that's why Boaz had to address this, uh, this other, other person. Second, he must have the resources to redeem. You've got to have a price to pay to purchase the forfeited inheritance. And then you've got to have a resolve to redeem. And that's exactly, exactly what we see in Boaz. And this is the picture in the Old Testament of a kinsman redeemer paying the price to bring this woman into his line. And the whole picture in Romans chapter, uh, in Ruth chapter four gives us a picture of how, of how this would all lead to, to Christ um, in, the, in the end, Matthew chapter one. That's first picture. Second, Hosea, the faithful husband. We'll run through this real quick. Hosea, this story is told on two lines. It's an individual story and a national story. A faithful husband. God tells Hosea, go and marry Gomer. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one, her name is Gomer, okay? That's problem number one, all right? David, go and marry Heather. Ah, yes. David, go and marry Gomer. Hmm. Okay, so we got, we got Gomer. And the second problem is Gomer was a prostitute. We don't know if Gomer was a prostitute before, after, for sure. There's some debate among scholars on that. But the reality is the picture that's being set up here is a picture of an unfaithful wife. And that's what God's people are displayed as, an unfaithful bride. And as the story is told, what we see is two elements. The story of an unfaithful people. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. She is not my wife and I am not her husband. We're going to fly through this. She was adulterous. She, the Bible talks about sin in terms of spiritual adultery. When you and I go and find our satisfaction from the stuff of this world instead of the greatness of our God, then we are, we are committing spiritual adultery. This is the seriousness of sin. Adulterous, idolatrous, worshiping the Canaanite rain god, Baal. Hypocritical because she was still participating in religious feasts, Israel was. This is a picture, individual story, Hosea and Gomer, that's representing the national story. Hypocritical, and she was forgetful. I will punish her. This is for the climax here, Hosea 2.13. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Now look up here, after you, after you read Hosea 2.13, look up here, don't look back down yet. Okay, everybody look in here. The indictment here is God says about his people, adulterous, idolatrous, hypocritical, and forgetful, turned back on me completely. And I'll go and let you know, don't look down, but the very next word, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, the very next word is therefore. 
I want you to think about what's about to come. My bride has been adulterous, idolatrous, hypocritical, and she has turned it back and willfully forgot me, run after other men instead of me. This is God talking about his people. Therefore, what do we expect? In light of all we've seen, therefore judgment, therefore wrath, therefore judgment. Instead, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, some of the most beautiful words in all the Old Testament. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. Wow. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Unfaithful people and a story of an unreasonable God. He says, I will allure her. The word is intentionally romantic. It's a word that we would use to describe how a middle schooler wants a girl to look at him. This is a picture of God saying, I'm going to allure her to myself. I will lead her. I will speak tenderly to her. I will give to her. I will restore her. You will not just call me Lord. You will call me husband. I will protect her, betroth her, respond to her, and I will establish her. And then you get to one of the most beautiful chapters in Old Testament, Hosea chapter 3, I will pay the price for her. When God says to Hosea, you go, you go and pay the price to bring Gomer back to yourself. You go pay a slave's price to bring her back to yourself. So that's the Old Testament, redemption anticipated. New Testament, redemption achieved. Here's the deal. Christ is our redeemer. Christ is our redeemer. He's the one that pays the price. His payment was celebrated. You see Zechariah here, the prophetess Anna, the picture of when Christ came on the scene. This is the redemption of God, what we have waited for. His payment was costly. The word that is used over and over again in the New Testament to describe the payment of Christ is not he gave his life, he gave himself, but he gave his blood. Blood is the price that was paid. His payment was costly and his payment was complete. Jesus doesn't have to keep making payments. Payment is complete and it's paid for. Christ is our redeemer and Christ is our victor. Yes, he is the conqueror. It is victory promised. Genesis chapter three, the very beginning, entrance of sin into the world. God said, I'm going to send one devil who is going to crush your head. Victory promised at the very beginning. Victory begun. Victory begun, Matthew chapter 12. As Jesus comes on the scene, we see his power over demons. We see his power over nature, his authority over all things. Victory accomplished. Listen to this, Colossians 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us. Listen to this. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Check this out. Sinful people are forgiven at the cross, and spiritual powers are overthrown. Sinful people forgiven, spiritual powers overthrown. Christ has disarmed them. He has embarrassed them. He has defeated them. Sinful people forgiven, spiritual powers overthrown, and spiritual powers defeated. He has defeated them. Our Redeemer, Christ, owns us forever. Victory accomplished, victory announced. This is where the resurrection comes in. The resurrection is the stamp, the vindication. Yes, the payment is complete. We'll dive into that on Sunday here, but the picture is Jesus on the cross saying, it is finished. And what he means is, it is finished. It's finished. The 
price has been paid. The debt has been covered. Completely covered. And the resurrection is God's announcement that yes, yes, the payment has been made. You have nothing to pay. Don't work. You have nothing to pay. Victory awaited. Victory awaited. This is not to say that redemption is complete. We're not home yet. We're not home yet. But it's guaranteed we're going home. And the redemption of our bodies is going to happen.